Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. And welcome to this our latest podcast, and in fact the last one before Christmas. So happy Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas for those of you in the States. Yeah, happy holidays. Whatever, if uh, you're not particularly Christian. But whatever. Have a wonderful and healthy time. We've got some news for you before we all pack up for Christmas. First thing is, we've got the next issue is going to be out between um, this podcast and the New Year's. Lynn's holding it up for vlogcast viewers. Uh, looks like a cracking issue, the January one, again available right across the States and the, and the UK. Be available from late December in the stores. So look out for it, and even better, buy it. It's got some great stories this month, um, th- this time about healing thyroid problems. If you've got an underactive thyroid, particularly one caused by Hashimoto's disease, you can actually sort it out by a, a special diet. Mm. So we cover all of that. And we also have some great detox programs. I mean, using exercise to detox, believe it or not. Um, how to shorten colds and flu how to take good care of your gums and not get gum disease um, and prevent all the problems people have with gums now, Um, how to wound heal faster, you know, heal your wounds faster, and so much more. Um, And we've got, you know, really, really good programs looking at and good stories looking at things like fasting. Is it good for you? And which fast to do? Hmm. That sounds really interesting, Lynn. Can't read, wait to read my copy. <laughs> but anyway, in the meantime, we'll move on to some news. And the screws seem to be ever tightening on parents who choose not to vaccinate their kids or don't follow the exacting standards that have been laid down. And uh, the latest development on this front is that a major pediatric hospital in the States, the Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital in St. Petersburg, in fact, Um, is saying that it refuses to treat any children who have not had the full vaccine schedule. And those who um, are existing patients must comply within 90 days, or again, they'll have to find another hospital. And what is interesting about this is actually what the hospital is doing is unlawful, because they're also saying they're refusing to recognise the religious exemptions which are allowed in the state of Florida. So I don't think they have the right to do that. But nonetheless, at the moment, they are. And um, in a notice to patients, the hospital's medical director points out that the vaccines are very safe and very effective. And um, I'm sure we will talk about that in a minute. And um, it's already got some backlash, of course. One doctor has already said that the, um, this is the next phase of the systematic destruction of your health care rights emanating from the vaccine industry. We should have got him on the show, shouldn't we? <laughs> what, what do you reckon of that? Well, I mean, this is really shocking. And it is one more step that um, the government and the medical authorities are taking to erode your rights when it comes to your children. Um, the bottom line, as Medicine well knows, as the government well knows, is there is no such thing as a totally safe vaccine. Um, They work imperfectly, and sometimes they hurt children and adults. And we know this because there is a whole VAERS system, which is the Vaccine Damage 
agency set up by this, um, the Centers for Disease Control and the Food and Drug Administration so that if some kid is damaged, um, the doctor needs to report it and the parents, and there is a compensation scheme for those children. That is tacit admission that these vaccines sometimes damage kids. And every single vaccine, every single vaccine that children get from the time they're infants to the time that they're young adults carries risks and has been demonstrated to damage some people. Some are worse than others. Some are more dangerous than others. And the, you know, the payouts reflect this. So this is common knowledge. It's also fact. It's just fact. Mm. So I would recommend, I am hoping, Brian, that mm. somebody challenges John Hopkins mm. because mm. I think this is terrible. Mm. I think this idea that we won't, just because we think vaccines are safe, even though that flies in the face of so much evidence, we won't treat a child unless they're vaccinated. That is forcing you to put a bullet in a gun and hold it at your kid's head and hope that he doesn't get the bullet when you play Russian roulette. Mm. So my recommendation would be for someone who has a child who is going to hospital and is faced with that is to simply say what we, we used to always say to our people about vaccinations and that we do in a thing called a vaccination bible that we have online it, we have a form that says basically i doctor put he should put in his name guarantee to these parents that any vaccinations we give your child will be perfectly safe if they are not safe we will not administer them and then a place for the signature. So that's putting the onus right back on the doctor to say, okay, if you think these are so safe, put your name to this. You know, and if you can't guarantee you won't hurt my child, mm. then we won't go through with this. And is it, I mean, the, the VARS system, which you mentioned a minute ago, has paid out something like $1.6 billion in damages to families whose children have either been permanently damaged or died as a result of, of a vaccine. So as you say, we know it's not perfectly entirely safe, as despite what the hospital says. But, you know, and I think it's also missing the point in a way, which is that we all bang on about vaccines, but really what we should be talking about is the immune system. Mm. And the idea that we should really encourage our or get our children to be fully healthy, functioning immune system is so much more important than lining up for the next vaccine. Well, particularly as, you know, if there were an epidemic mm. and the vaccine were shown to be relatively safe, you can argue and justify it. But in most instances, we're talking about diseases that have long disappeared mm. or are very, very, you know, um, minimal. And you're also talking about vaccines where there are breakouts mm. Um, huge breakouts, as in the case of measles or mumps or rubella, even though the uh, an entire population is vaccinated against that illness. So the vaccines work imperfectly and they can cause major damage, particularly the additives put in those vaccines yeah. can cause more damage than um, the disease is meant to prevent. And it's very interesting. I mean, people say, well, of course, the diseases don't exist because the vaccines are working so well. But when you look at the graphs, that just isn't the case because you are starting to see a steep decline 
in these infectious diseases around about 1850, 1860, with the um, introduction of proper sanitation, proper water systems in, in cities and towns, or certainly around the UK and probably in the States as well. But when that sort of started to happen, you saw an enormous drop-off in the, the rate of these diseases. And it, when the MMR and the other vaccines were introduced in the 70s and 80s, you look then, and the, 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 there is a minimal further reduction, but it's like 0.2% reduction beyond the enormous steep decline that started in 1850s, 1860s with, with good sanitation. That had much more to do with the decline of these diseases than vaccines. Absolutely. I mean, this is an issue we know we've covered every vaccine, from the travel vaccines to the vaccines kids are given in infancy to the ones like the HPV vaccine given for teenagers and young adults. And we've looked at three things. How necessary are they? How safe are they? And how effective are they? And every single one has spotty track records, some more than others. So we have a vast catalog of information about it. And I have to tell you, you're, we're about the only publication, with maybe one or two exceptions, where you're going to hear the truth about vaccinations. The general press, general media, is fed the information from government agencies that now are essentially populated by ex-drug company people and have a more of a vested interest in saying this stuff is safe. So it's worth checking this out. It's also worth, I hope, a parent is going to challenge Johns Hopkins on this, on this question and any other hospital that dares to do, take this position. Thanks, Dave. GC MAF, it's, uh, it's a fascinating therapy because it's one that was developed in 1991 by a Japanese scientist. It's a naturally occurring protein that the body produces. And what it does, it, um, it kickstarts the, um, the phages in the body, the white blood cells that mop up disease and what you will. But the idea behind it is that People who are ill, who have cancer in particular, have developed things that block GCMAF from being produced. And this, according to the theory, is um, the reason why cancers develop. Now, uh, this particular scientist um, then developed it so that it could be um, artificially reintroduced into the body and so fight the cancer. And there'd be a number of studies gone into this and some were found to be extraordinary in the sense that he the claims he was making were amazing that it would fight cancer that it could reverse aids that it was very good for autism and needless to say a lot of these studies ended up being shot down because they were found to be somewhat faulty um and then from there um other people got in on the act and one of them was a man called david noakes um, who set up his own production of GCMAF. And he got involved with a chap, uh, a doctor in America, um, called Dr. Jeff Bradstreet. Now, in 2015, Dr. Bradstreet was found dead with a gunshot wound in his chest. And the police said this was suicide. To be fair, his clinic had just been raided by the FDA, the Federal Food and Drug uh, Administration, because um, he had been using GCMAF 
to treat autistic children. He was raided. Four days later, his body was found in a river. The police said this was suicide. His family were not convinced because they said, well, um, he wasn't suicidal and uh, he wasn't overly depressed by what had happened with the FDA. He felt he could fight this. And um, it was also very peculiar. The, the entry point and the burn marks around the chest suggested the firing took place further away than the gun would be for suicide. But there the matter has rested uneasily. And now more recently, David Noakes himself, who has been manufacturing GCMAF, has recently been jailed for 15 months for selling an unlicensed medicine. He's also on a charge of money laundering. So yeah, there's something probably in that. But nonetheless, that here we have a therapy that could be a breakthrough therapy. We don't really know. I think there needs to be more research done. But we had the case of um, Bradstreet's clinics being raided. Then you had Noakes's uh, manufacturing centre being raided. And in that case, £5.5 million worth of products were removed. But no one seems to be actually answering, asking the question, well, is there anything in this? Is this actually a therapy that genuinely can help people? Or is it a con, as of course the detractors say? Well, I think this is really shocking. Um, certainly, I don't know about the whole money laundering charge. Um, I do know we have interviewed David Noakes before all of this came to pass, and we interviewed many of the patients who purchased this stuff, and they swore it was saving their lives. Hmm. Many, many cancer patients. And there are other scientists in the States that are using products that activate GCMF in the body and are claiming all kinds of amazing success. And these are independent scientists. Um, and I'm thinking of uh, one in particular who doesn't have, you know, doesn't have financial interests in the promotion of GCMF, um, but still is finding amazing results. It's just one of those things where, you know, more than anything else, I distrust the, the cancer establishment because we've seen so many examples of raids on people with promising treatments for cancer. And we also know that despite the hype and all of the prettily turned phrases, essentially we're losing the war on cancer. We're still not winning. People may have to go through this heroic levels of chemotherapy to get a few more months of life. That's not winning. That's not winning. So we should be open to any potentially uh, positive and potentially promising uh, treatment for cancer, Brian. And this one definitely is. This is worth protesting, complaining, shouting out loud about um, to see when and how we can get hold of mm. this kind of product because it looks like a systematic close down of something that's really important and it's, it's happened before. But it goes back to the point you made in a previous podcast which was the importance of creating an independent research group who have no financial ties to the outcome 
who can really look at this stuff that is there for mankind rather than the shareholders of drug companies. Because Absolutely. until this body exists, you know, this vital research will never happen. And, and you know, GCMAF may be, may be a con, maybe it's all a charade, but maybe, just maybe, it could be a vital new step in our war against cancer. And certainly the people who were benefiting from it didn't have to take chemotherapy, they didn't have to go through all of the potentially damaging and life-destroying treatments that exist now that are the only path in conventional medicine for cancer patients. So this is not to denigrate, if you're listening and your life was saved by chemotherapy, this is not to denigrate it. Um, and congratulations. What I'm concerned about is the sheer numbers of people who don't survive those therapies and that we can't claim they're a success until we're, we're beating cancer. You know what it's like. You spend a year dieting, you're looking good, and then you put the weight right back on again. You know, it's what everyone does. It's called the yo-yo diet. You're putting it on, you're taking it off. You're putting it on, you're taking it off. How can you break this circle? Well, scientists have looked at this, and they think the way to do is to really cut down on all carbs. And um, they did a test amongst some people to see, well, does this really work? And they found that... Um, People who were on a very low-carb diet were losing around 20 pounds of weight, which is 9 kilos. And it's, that's greater than someone on a high-carb diet. So it really does seem to come back to carbs as always. And of course, you know, we understand the mechanism of carbs, that they get converted to sugars. The um, pancreas releases insulin to break down the sugars. The, if there's an, an excess of insulin because there are too many carbs, it gets stored as fat. And that's why people put on weight all over again. And for once, these particular researchers from the Boston Children's Hospital did also try and differentiate a little between bad and good carbs, which, again, normally these researchers just don't do. And, of course, it has an enormous impact that the, the carbs that are in processed foods, which are high-sugar foods, just are so much worse for us. So it's, um, you know, the key is not to go back to old habits. If you're overweight because you're eating processed foods, you don't go back and eat processed foods because you're going to put the weight right back on again. And that's the mechanism. That is why it's happening. And so, you know, people do need to look at this and stick to this healthy, low-carb diet. And the carbs that you do eat need to be healthy, low-sugar ones. Well, I, you know, it makes sense, Brian, from two perspectives. One is that the researchers, I thought it was really fascinating to find that people eating low-carb diets after this weight loss mm. were burning more calories per day than those on the higher-carb diets. Mm. That was the real fascinating yeah. piece. Yeah. So they were just... They were much more energy efficient with these high, uh, with these low carb um, uh, foods. Mm. You know things like regular vegetables and uh, uh, certain fruits and you know proteins, and that makes a lot of sense when we think about our ancestors. You know our ancestors didn't have grains; they didn't have processed foods, so they had to eat a diet essentially of meat, fish vegetables and fruits mm. that was it 
and, um, and fats. And that is essentially what they're talking about. And the body just seems to be much more efficient on yeah, that. Yeah. And to be able to, to process that and just run through that as energy. And, it, and because it's more efficient, it burns more energy. Mm. Well, from a chemical point of view, the reason why is because um, a low-carb diet releases fewer hormones called ghrelins, which in turn slow calorie burning. So if you don't have those running around your body, you're going to be more efficient in burning calories in the first place. And those kinds of, um, that kind of hormone is really key to whether or not we feel full or not. Mm, yeah. So fascinating stuff. Yeah, as Lynn said, the low-carb group was burning 250 calories a day more than the high-carb uh, dieters. And that translates to about a 20-pound weight loss after three years, which... Not bad, eh? Not bad. Okay. So, you know, you're watching this around Christmas time. Enjoy your Christmas food. But this is what you do afterward. You want to lose those extra pounds, go on a low-carb diet. Everybody is saying that it's the healthy diet to follow now. Yeah, I mentioned at the beginning, this is our last podcast before Christmas. And Christmas means lots of things to us. I know about fun and frolics festivities, the crackers, yeah? walnuts roasting by an open fire. But you know, it's something else or it should be something else. And that's really is making sure that people aren't on their own at Christmas. And uh, the reason why I raise this is there's been a study that's come out that's demonstrated that people who do live alone, who are isolated, run the risk of uh, premature death that's twice as great as cancer and heart disease combined. So living alone is twice as lethal as heart disease and cancer, which of course are recognised as the two biggest killers. But indeed that's not the case, that isolation really is. And um, you know, there are so many people who are living alone. They never see anybody. They don't see family or friends. They don't belong to any social groups. And they quite literally can go months without seeing anyone from day to day. And this is the most horrible, terrible thing. So, you know, this Christmas time, if you do know someone who's on their own, pop in and see them. Absolutely. I mean, the evidence shows, I, I covered this in my book, The Bond, Brian, uh, the evidence shows that isolation, you know, we were never meant to be alone. Mm. And that social isolation accounts for 50% of heart disease. You know, half of the patients who get heart attacks don't have any evidence of high cholesterol and all of those other things. Mm. They're just lonely. Yeah. And there's lots of other things that cause physical effects in the body. We know that, you know, grieving can actually cause literal heartbreak. Mm. You know, it can stun the heart mm. into breaking. And we know even those societies where they have a high genetic propensity, say for depression, uh, a group of individuals in the, you know, a, a society in the Far East had a higher genetic propensity for depression, but they suffered less depression than a group of Westerners without that gene pool mm. um, because they didn't allow people to stay on their own. Right. They had much more social connection. Yeah. So connectedness, just joining one group, 
says Robert Putnam mm. uh, of Harvard University. One group this year, whether it's a book club or a bowling society, one group alone will have your chances of dying wow. next year. Wow. And, uh, you know, it, it is the sort of, I suppose, the unspoken, unrecognized cause of heart disease and cancers. I mean, it's fascinating that that is indeed, seems to be the case. So look, make sure no one's left alone in your neighborhood this Christmas. Be a good Samaritan, be a good neighbor, and make sure you, you pay a visit. And that's it, Lynn. This is us for 2018. We're done. We're finished. And so look, happy Christmas, everybody. Have a wonderful, relaxing, and of course, healthy time. Lynn's going to show to the vlog people yes. the latest copy which comes out next week. And we'll see you the other side of Christmas in 2019. Absolutely. Robert. And we're far from finished. We've got lots and lots of new things to talk to you about mm. in 2019. All kinds of areas that are going to be really vital to your health. Mm. And we're excited to tell you, too, that we are one of the fastest uh, growing magazines in this sector. So a lot of other people like you are really interested in finding out how to control your own health. Mm. So happy holidays from both of us. Yeah, happy Christmas, everyone. Have a wonderful new year. Uh, make this your healthiest and your happiness at happiest and your most abundant. From all of us at What Doctors Don't Tell You, have a wonderful 2019. <laughs>